This year on Human Cogs, we're mixing it up. As always, we're all about having meaningful conversations minus the small talk. And in this episode, I take to the mic for a one-on-one with the passionate, thought-provoking, raw and ever-curious Sarah Wilson. Sarah is a former journalist and ex-editor of Cosmo magazine and was the host on season one of MasterChef. She wrote the New York Times bestsellers, I Quit Sugar and First We Make the Beast Beautiful. And her 11 cookbooks have sold in 52 countries. Today, Sarah lives minimally and is a passionate author, activist and campaigner for mental health and climate issues. In this chat, Sarah shares her experiences living with bipolar, being diagnosed with two autoimmune diseases and arriving at a time in her life where both she and the world seemed devoid of hope. As a young person, Sarah says being vulnerable was an alien concept to her and that writing her latest book, This One Wild and Precious Life, was a form of therapy an invitation for all our souls to do life differently and a quest to nurture a hopeful path forward in a fractured world. And for me personally, if I could choose a group of dinner guests that would inspire and challenge the way we live and think, Sarah would be at the top of my list. Here's my chat with Sarah. So for you, Sarah Wilson, my first question is, how is the state of your heart in this breath? Uh, That's a lovely way to start an interview. Thank you. Um, My heart is in a state of, look, it's full. It's full as I take in and absorb everything that's been happening throughout 2020. And I'm feeling this kind of really kind of fired up sense of, I don't know, vigilant purpose. Um, for what's ahead and that's a very present thing you know to specify that in in that breath in this moment but yeah it's it's nice to be asked ask that thank you (laughs) well tell us um why that question's important to you it's actually a persian version um sort of a farsi um version of how are you Mm. um and it translates to how is your heart in this breath or how is the state of your heart in this breath and um, it, it, what it does is it takes us to a lovely considered um, space. You can't respond to that question with, oh, I'm fine or busy, you know. Um, you've actually got to be considered and mindful and thoughtful and, and you give back. And in my latest book, um, I, I come up with a range of different practices, small like this one, but and large in terms of, you know, really kind of big shifts in our thinking. Um, but get us more connected back into life, back to our nature as humans and back to the nature of our surrounds, mm. the state of our planet, um, in an effort to basically save us. So, yeah, mindful discerning practices like that, I feel, are going to be the way forward for us. Mm. I agree. I mean, that question also requires a level of vulnerability, doesn't it? Because when you're asked, how is your heart in this very breath? If you're feeling fragile or down or small or unsure, it requires an answer to share that. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. And and as you know, because you've read my book, I use beautiful questions as a way to get to those really vulnerable Mm. um, touch points, you know, those sort of those sticky points, those points that we crave. And the beautiful question concept, and of course that question in itself, you know, how is your heart and its breath, is, is a beautiful question. And I take that phrase from a poet, David White, who I, I followed for many, many years, and I was able to go hiking with him last year in Lake District. It's sort of uh, a favourite place of his. He's a big, burly Irish guy who comes from... He actually grew up in the north of England. He's a big bloke, and then he just produces this incredible poetry. But he um, introduced me to this idea of asking the beautiful questions mm. and that there's always a more beautiful question to ask. And the way he describes what a beautiful question is, he, he actually says it's the more vulnerable, courageous question. Mm. It's, it's several layers deeper than the one you just asked. And so we might ask a question like, why are people doing this? And why did that person do that to me? And the more beautiful or vulnerable question is to go, okay, what's going on here? Why did that bother me? What is it about my reaction? What is it about my interaction with this person? And so, yeah, I invite people to go ask 
a whole bunch of beautiful questions throughout the book. It's about taking us to a vulnerable place. And look, you know, there's lots of authors who've written about vulnerability. And I have to say, when I first started reading it, you know, Brene Brown, I didn't really get it because it was so alien. It was so alien to my experience, the way that I've been behaving. And I've had to use some of these practices to experience it, to tap into that feeling, that space within my humanity. And it's some wonders for my ability to, to be more courageous and to do the work I do. So vulnerability was alien to you because you weren't vulnerable or you didn't recognise it in yourself or in others or didn't grow up with vulnerability? What was alien about it? Oh, like so many people, I saw vulnerability as something that, you know, was a weakness. It was it was a thing you accused someone of. You know, you didn't actively go to that place and see it as a benefit to your life. Mm. Look, I had the same reaction to meditation when I first got introduced to it. I had panic attacks each time I tried to do it because of a whole range of things that went through my head, you know, when I tried to do it. For me, it just took a curiosity and going back to it in different ways, in different angles. And vulnerability is, I don't know, I almost feel like there needs to be a different word for it. It's sort of an opening. It's an opening into discomfort. So I know that I'm being vulnerable when I feel really discomfort and I want to sleep. And then I started to realize that when I want to flee from the situation, that's actually more yuck, more annoying, more gritty when I think about it, more despairing than actually just opening myself up. Mm-hmm. But it's taken me many, many years to do it. It's, um, and sometimes it's about being dragged there by life to mm-hmm. the point where you've got no choice. You've got no choice but to say to someone, I actually do need to help. And look, you know, I grew up in a, a in a large, robust family full of boys and I was the eldest and I had to be the capable one, you know. There's all that stuff. We've all got our sort of stories. But I suppose vulnerability wasn't something that, you know, I sort of saw on display. My mother was an extremely, extremely stoic, mm. strong woman who never, sh- you know, really didn't show her feelings. And um, we got on with things, you know. And it's not, a, you know, it's an experience that many would be familiar with. But, yeah, it's it's been a really wonderful um, experiment. And this is how I treat so many. I was saying this to a friend this morning. For me, so much of what I do is an experiment in taking myself to uncomfortable places which in the end, really, I do know are geared at making this life better for myself and for those around me. But I treat it as an experiment because then I don't trust attach so much attachment to it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, I'm just going to go there delicately and asking beautiful questions is that. Mm. It's, well, well, I'm just going to curiously see where this takes me, you know? Does the discomfort of asking this question and feeling vulnerable, you know, because I'm opening myself up to God knows what, it's certainly not going to be a predictable, oh, busy, or yeah, fine. Mm. I, I just have to go there and see what happens next. Let's see what, happen next, uh, what happens next. And so it's an experiment that, you know, for want of any other better reason to live in a life, it's a bad one. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I mean, you're really, yeah, you're talking about curiosity is what an experimental mindset really is, isn't it? Being That's open. Right. No, or or another mm-hmm. way, another word that a lot of, or another phrase people use is beginner's mind. It's if you've never seen it before and to not bring any preconceived or biases with you, which is so hard for us because, as you say, we all bring some kind of bag of tricks from yesteryear with us. And a beginner's mind is inviting us to say, I know nothing about this. So I just come, I surrender and I open and see see what's in front of me and what it feels like. Another way to look at it, I think I've thought of, especially for A-type, which much of the world is these days, you know, we've been all forced to be a sort of A-type, but um, people who need some more of a, I don't know, more of a pragmatic approach to it, there's also a wildness to Mm. being vulnerable. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, And that's what my book explores really quite a lot. It's doing almost the opposite at times, doing stuff because the status quo has said to go one way. And you know what? The status quo ain't working at the moment. Mm. We've sort of exhausted the the, the run of the of the capitalist greed. We, you know, it no longer works for us. The me versus you, us versus them, didactic approach to things that doesn't work for us. You know, raping and pillaging the planet doesn't work for us. So let's get a bit wild with things. Let's try to do things differently. And I feel that this recent couple of years in terms of the climax of the climate crisis. It's speeding up and, of course, COVID and, 
and the US election, which we've all had to live through one way or another, um, it's had huge impacts on the world. All of that has just left me wide open, mm. very, very raw, and that's given me a really great space. And I think a lot of people are feeling like this. A great space to explore other ways of doing things because, hey, it's almost like everything's up for grabs now. Mm-hmm. Like, we're going to have to try other ways. We're going to have to get innovative. We're going to have to get wild yeah. to save this one wild and precious life. Yeah. And the title of your book is so bang on. And I love the idea of being wild because I think within each of us, I know for me for sure, um, there's a lot of wild that resides that gets sort of massaged along the way perhaps or or edited, whether that's perceived or real editing that goes on and sometimes dampens the wild. And as you say, wild is another kind of curiosity and you're ready to bring it in the one wild and precious life. You also talk about Milton Friedman, the founder of neoliberalism, as saying only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. So I'm, I'm curious in your life, what has been your greatest personal crisis and what change did it catalyze? Oh, wow. Um, I, I, I'm a long series of crises. You know, that's generally how I've been able to move forward in my life. And that's really why that quote really appealed to me. And, of course, the irony of it coming from a, a huge capitalist hero who, you know, and of course, capitalism has landed in the, the state that we're in at the moment. So it's a wonderful irony. The second aspect of that quote is, and the change that happens is going to depend on the ideas lying around at the time. Mm-hmm. And that's the opportunity that we have at the moment. And I've had throughout my life is what ideas are sitting there fermenting when the crisis happens. So for me, I suppose the crisis that I've worked with, I, at 21, I was diagnosed with bipolar. And of course, that wasn't the beginning of my bipolar episode. It was when I was finally diagnosed. So I suppose it was in my late teens when I really started to question what my life was about and I started taking steps to the left and to the right of what everyone else was doing in order to be able to be truly me. Now, at the time, I didn't realise that's what I was doing and, in fact, if anything, I was trying to fit in, but I couldn't help help it. There was this fire in my belly, this surge, what I call a yearning in another one of my books, First to Make the Beast Beautiful, which is about my sort of trying to reframe anxiety and bipolar and a bunch of other so-called disorders through a philosophical and spiritual end. That was a big one. And actually, that was probably when I first had to get really vulnerable. I was living over there in the States and I was very alone. I went missing. Basically, um, the university had to come and find me. And wonderfully and ironically, it was my quantum physics professor who came to get me. And it was he that actually then influenced me many, many years ago uh, years later, on the idea of interconnectedness mm. and the way that the oneness can be explained by science. I didn't make that connection until my publisher did. Um, so it was incredible. So it was this really beautiful full circle. But, um, yeah, so that was a really big one. Yeah, the crisis was that, and then the realisation that came out of it was that I might have to do this life a bit differently. Then um, I suppose another crisis was when I was 34. I developed an autoimmune disease. And it's called Hashimoto's, it's a thyroid disease. And that debilitated me to the point where I couldn't work or walk for almost a year. And I'd been the editor of Cosmo, the host of MasterChef. I'd been somewhat in the public eye and living this kind of glamorous life, you know. And all of a sudden, I was slammed to the pavement. I, you know, Hashimoto's, and I'm sure there'd be people out there listening to this who either know someone with it or have it themselves. Um, it... Basically, oh my God, does it slap you down? It makes you put on huge amounts of weight. Um, so I put on, I put on something like, oh gosh, what was it? It was about almost twenty kilos in four weeks. Wow! My hair fell out. Yeah, my and I've gone the other way as well. I had Graves' disease when I was first diagnosed with bipolar, mm-hmm. and that saw me lose eighteen kilos in three weeks. And you know, so it does. It goes the other way, um, and that was horrific as well. And often, if you've had Graves. Years later, you'll have Hashimoto's. It's just a, it's a lovely sequence of mm. <laughs> autoimmune diseases. So, yeah, your, your nails fall off, your hair falls out. You develop all kinds of skin problems. You can't sleep, but you need so much sleep. You know, you lose all of your energy and your vibrancy. 
I was told I'd never be able to have children. You know, your whole system breaks down. And so I had to, yeah, I had to disappear. I, I moved, um, I lost all of my sort of savings and I packed up what I had into two suitcases and moved to a army shed in a forest outside of Byron Bay. And I lived there for a year and a half healing myself. And, and the gift that came out of that was in that time I quit sugar. Now, this is exactly 10 years ago. I quit sugar 1st of January 2011. Um, and so, yeah, I went up there and gradually found ways to get myself back on track. So, so that was something. And, and then I suppose I actually would say that the writing of this book, I had a huge crisis simply because I couldn't find a hopeful path forward for the book to myself and that's what I built myself up for. I had built myself up for the fact that I was going to study these great thinkers, philosophies, spiritual texts and find a way that would galvanise humanity to rise up and really want to save the planet because as I was writing the book, the UN announced that really if we don't actually as a, an entire planet galvanise into action by the end of 2020 and here we are, then we won't make this. We won't be able to prevent the tipping point. We won't be able to prevent global warming above 1.5 degrees, which is the amount that we are able to increase temperatures by from industrial the industrial area without suffering major, major consequences, tipping points, and, and really what's now known as the sixth extinction, which is humanity, humans um, becoming extinct. So I was reading all of this going, oh, my God, what is the way forward? And I went into a really deep, dark place about a year ago as I was trying to wrestle my way through this. Out of that, I was forced. I was really choiceless. I had to find a way. I had to because I, I, I couldn't put out the book until I did. I, I don't think I could continue living, to be honest, unless I did. And um, so they would be big crises <laughs> uh, that brought about change in my personal life. Yeah, yeah. That that um, well, they each of them in their own way. I mean, we could have hours of conversation about bipolar. We could have hours of conversation about autoimmune. I'm particularly interested in the idea of removing yourself from the world, the community, or the the connections that you know or had, and putting yourself somewhere separate to that, which was in Byron Bay in an army camp. Did you say? I can't. Remember. I was in the old army shed, like shed. a king shed. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. total sort of removal, which, and we could also, of course, talk about hope, which was the last thing that you said you had none of and and without it we don't want to live we don't want to live without hope so mm. each of those are so significant and I know there'll be you know deep stories behind each of them I wish we had more time to go into every one of them but there's some perhaps correlation or underpinning theme there of connection that's coming up for me and I know that you've also talked a lot about you talk a lot about connection and you've said before we're crying out for connection with ourselves with each other and with all of life. So I wonder what what role you think connection played in your formative years and, and now and in the world around us. Mm. Yeah, it's a funny one. I think plumbers, um, you know, often have leaky toilets. Psychiatrists <laughs> will often have underlying mental illnesses. And somebody who goes and writes a book about the lack of connection in the world is generally struggling with it themselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm laughing as a psychologist, um, you know, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, that's right. With my uh, yeah, I had, I had to imagine. Yeah, I had to imagine what your mental state's like, you know, behind the scenes. <laughs> well, dark, I, I, dark know, place, I know my, right? my thirst for connection is big, very big. Yeah. yeah. Look, it's it, it, it really actually, I think, came into sort of almost the, the newspapers and came to the forefront of discussion during uh, the COVID pandemic. So throughout this year, we realised as we shut down the world and sent people off into isolation that, hey, this is a bit of a problem. And, and this is something I've done a few podcasts and you know, Instagram lives with people around this because I live on my own and I'm single and I've been single for 15 years. And so when, you know, our Prime Minister went, right, you're not allowed to leave the house. And you can just come out, you know, hang out with your immediate family, you know, get to know each other, you know. 
I was left going, yeah, right, great. So we've forgotten about the people who are, you know, on their own. And so it was a very particular experience. And I know that there's a lot of people who were, you know, having to do homeschooling and live with partners that were not ideal or relationships that were, were difficult. And so I think it was it was lonely in, in a whole range of different ways for people. But what it did is that it actually made us question what real connection is about. So mm-hmm. we have more social connections than ever before. You know, we are bombarded with connections. But what is actually, and so we talk about loneliness and this epidemic of loneliness, and, and we've been talking about it particularly this year, but what is um, missing from that discussion is that we're not actually lonely for more people in our lives or at least the bulk of the time. There's, of course, disenfranchised people, you know, the elderly, the underemployed and so on, who certainly do suffer from that. But in the main, the, the loneliness that we mostly feel is a is a loneliness from meaningful connection. Yeah. And so that's a broader discussion, right? And I think you and I have spoken, you know, to this a bit um, mm. separately to this, this podcast, and this is something that isn't discussed well enough because we almost don't have the language for it. Mm. The reason why we have so few meaningful connections today is because of the society that we've evolved into where the neoliberal system has got rid of, for instance, the gatekeepers, what I call the moral umpires, the various institutions that would keep spiritual and philosophical dialogue going and they would mark out the moral sort of boundary lines for us. So that might have been the church or other religious structures. It might have been the state in the form of, well, no, you don't work on a Sunday and you don't work half a Sunday and you can spend time with each other. Mm-hmm. And, oh, work hours are strictly between 9 and 5.30 and there's a human rights, human resources department that you can go and complain to if you've got to work extra hours, you know. And so we have these sort of boundaries, these moral sort of guardrails, and we had more time to have discerning thought. We'd watch the news once a day. That's how often we would get news. Mm-hmm. And so we had time, and we, you know, to talk about it with um, people, you know, with our family or maybe with work colleagues the next morning over the water cooler. We don't have time to have meaningful discussions, even with ourselves as well, because they're so distracted with technology. And technology is something of an evil but really all it's done is it's enabled us to go down further into this lack of meaning you know disconnect so I actually really like to make that distinction when we talk about connection and I I had to sort of write a book to dig down into it because when I was talking about it like or writing about it I'm at my least lonely at times when I'm alone Mm. and this is something that spiritualists and philosophers have written about for many many years that to be truly at peace with yourself, to develop a relationship with yourself that you can then go out and you can then have a meaningful relationship with others, you've got to pull away. And so, you know, you mentioned that pulling away from society to go and get myself well again. It had its benefits and then, of course, it also uh, meant that, you know, I was severed a little from the community that could have helped me perhaps Mm. a little more than, than I allowed. So there's this sort of, there's the sweet spot in all of this. But I think the discussion needs to be had around this idea of meaningful connections. Mm. That's really at the heart of, of our pain. Yeah, or the, I often sort of contrast the quality of our connections versus the quantity. Yeah. And we can be surrounded by so many people and still feel disconnected. Or if we feel a really deep quality connection with a handful of people, that can be everything we need and, and more. Yeah, that's right. Because you're talking now in the context of current issues that we're facing as humanity and on the planet. Do you think there's any any historical piece to, to the connection story that you tell for you personally? Do you mean? Whether it's fam- family of origin, schooling, something uh, that... For lead- me personally. Yeah. 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 Um, oh, look, there's a few things. I, I know that my parents talk about me. I'm the eldest of six children and mum and dad had me quite young. And the next one came 15 or 16 months after me, next one, my beautiful brother then. Mm. I would say that there was, I think there's a fair bit about um, eldest children. I know that I wrote about this in Surgically Make the Beast Beautiful. I am a terrible insomnia. And there's actually quite, there's some studies that show that um, a lot of eldest children have insomnia. Mm. And especially when the second child comes quite shortly after. And it's to do with being able to self 
soothe. Yeah. You know, that's a big part of being a baby. You learn your mother or father will teach you how to be able to fall asleep and self-soothe, you know, so they're rocking. They're just gentle sort of teaching you of processes that can get you to be able to fall asleep. And so sometimes if you're the oldest or if you, in, in, in other cases where you've grown up in a lot of trauma, you miss out on that sort of important um, skill set. So, yeah, I would say that was the case. I was also a very intense child who grew up in a very mainstream, I would say, not very privileged background, if, if, you know, in the sense of, you know, very basic school, grew up in the country. I didn't fit in. I was a weirdo. I, I was odd. I had an eye patch when I was 12, <laughs> um, which I, I think most kids just wouldn't have worn it, but I did. So there was a, probably a few things like that, and I can talk about it sort of not feeling too self-conscious these days because I'm actually glad they happened because it made me who I am today and I, my life has got better and better as I've got older and older. But there was certainly a period in my teens and my 20s and it extended well into my 30s where I did distance myself. Mm. I sort of had a, a phrase, oh, Sarah Wilson doesn't need that. So D- I did, Let me just kid. repeat that. You said Sarah Wilson doesn't need that? Yeah. Yeah. So... I'd be the only kid that wasn't didn't go on school camp and the only kid who didn't go on a school excursion I'd stay back and clean the blackboards, you know, or I'd stay home and help mum with the kids. So I just had this yearly result. I don't need it. I didn't need to go on a stupid camp. And so I'd just do more homework, mm. right, and I'd be on top of everything. I'd go to school and, and so, you know, Wonderfully, I, I did well at school and I got lots of opportunities. So I ended up being able to go to university and I, I won scholarships and, and so I had these opportunities that, you know, really it saw me leapfrog, you know, out of my childhood. Was that because you weren't going on school excursions and all these other things because what was the barrier? Money. It was money. Mum and, okay. and Dad had no money and they really, they really struggled. Um, and they did the best they could. Sure. And there was a financial barrier that you understood that, so you chose to remove yourself before anyone could tell you otherwise and then yes. told that story to yourself as well. I don't. Sarah Wilson doesn't need that. Yes. She doesn't need that. She can help with her brothers. She can help with the goats. She can do other things. I was just going to get ahead. I was going to win. Um, that's the psychology that I took away. And, look, that carried on. I, I ended up working. I got my first job at 11, my first business at 12. Mm. I then, you know, very surreptitiously because I didn't want anyone to know, but I was modelling at 15 and earned quite a lot of money. And so I was able to move out of home and I I moved on to bigger and better. You know, I just kept moving onwards. And so it was a great skill set to have. And But it's interesting that you bring it up because a big part of my book, as you know, is talking about minimalism and the fact that, yeah. you know, I ended up, Whistling those two suitcases I took to Byron Bay down to one backpack, one 15-kilo backpack. Mm. And I wrote – I lived that way for eight of the last 10 years Mm. and wrote two books during – oh, multiple books during that time and had a business and all of that kind of thing and just didn't – and so I think that Sarah Wilson doesn't need that kind of psychology. I continued it, you know. Mm. I still have – very famously, because I think this is discussed in the project um, at ad nauseum, I own three pairs of underpants. Yeah. And it's just got to the point where I don't need more than that. Sarah also doesn't need more than three pairs of underpants. And it sounds like I've got this poverty syndrome. And I've had a good hard think about that. It turned into something that actually serves me really, really well. Mm. I've found an elegance and a simplicity in which I can work best. Yeah, that's Ditto with my loneliness. Mm. I've been able to use my loneliness to go and seek out humanity on the other side of the world. Mm. I lived as a nomad and I, I explore that quite a lot in the book and I had to explore it to understand it, to be able to write about it. But I realised that that's what I'm doing. I'm not running away from humanity. I'm running all connection. I am moving towards better connection mm. because I was seeking my tribe. How do you go from living with anxiety, with bipolar, with autoimmune disease and all the stories that you've so candidly shared even in in this chat, which is me focused mm-hmm. to what you now talk about this this outward journey of of we and our more 
collective nature and the global challenges we face. Because I see, I guess, clinically so often when we're drowning in our stories of me and the pain that we live in or the childhood that we had or how we wish it was different, it's very hard to look outward and to put your head up and to have this collective perspective because I'm drowning. So how can I look, how can I think about humanity and the world around me when I'm suffering? How did you make that leap? I'm so glad you say that because I also remember when I was in my darker moments, people would helpfully tell me and I'd read these books. Remember that rush of books that, you know, told you if you go and do engage in altruism and help in a charity, yes. then that will help you find your purpose. Yes. Honestly, the idea of venturing off and doing that, I just couldn't do it. Mm. I just couldn't. The idea terrified me. So, it, yes, I'm glad you, you make that distinction. Um, but how did I do it? I suppose the world got loud and I, I did get a lot of strength from writing first to make the beast beautiful as I say I write them for selfish reasons to work through my own stuff and and also to feel less alone and I say mm. that in the opener of first to make the beast beautiful and did the book achieve that absolutely mm. like it just made me feel I'd never come out and talked about any of this mm. even my family didn't really know about it and they were very shocked and they found it very hard they my brothers still haven't read the book. My parents struggled to have a relationship with me for a year and a half after the book came out, which I understand, and I have a great deal of compassion for them, and we've talked through it, and we're, we're good now. But I would say that I was able to resolve a lot of this stuff, and then I looked around, and I was doing book tours, and I realized the anxiety was now at a global mm. collective level. And I call it an itch, a collective itch. It's this sense that things are not right. It's an existential feeling that we are on the wrong track and we are cruising for a brick wall, mm. you know, and we're all in the same car together. And I think David Suzuki puts it so beautifully. He says, we're all in the car, cruising towards a, you know, careering towards a brick wall and we're arguing over what seat to sit in, you know, <laughs> which is, is the climate debate, right? Mm. So I, um, I was looking around, I was seeing it happening at a, a broader level and there's a wonderful phrase, and I'm sure you're familiar with um, James Hollis's work. He's a Freudian, uh, sorry, a Jungian mm. psycho or psychologist and he's written a wonderful range of different books and he actually has um, a phrase that he introduced me to and it's, our souls are calling us to an appointment with life. And I think it's the most beautiful phrase, and I refer to it in the book. And that's what I felt. I felt that life was now calling me to come and, and you know, be less self-absorbed and take the journey out to the rest of the world. And I think that that's what life is calling all of us to do. And I rail in the book against that sort of spiritual materialism that I think we've been caught up in for the last probably 30 years mm. of, oh, love and light and 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 doing all this spiritual work that really involves self-absorbed drumming circles and mm. you know um, <laughs> unicorns and rainbows when really and we've dropped all the sacrifice stuff the hard stuff of any spiritual tradition and being politically engaged you know the number of people you know who come out of a yoga class and then go oh I'm not into politics no no it's too heavy no it's terrible stuff mm. and it's like well. The spiritual's always been political. What do you think Jesus was doing? What do you think Gandhi was doing? All of these spiritual people, heroes and gurus, were rising to the political time. They were they were fighting against status quo to, and leading people to better. They were totally involved in the political process. So I felt just compelled, and I think so many people do, and I could feel the overwhelm. I could feel the... The, the numbness that I wanted to go into to be able to cope with everything I was seeing. Um, but I think the fact that I'd gone through anxiety mm. and gone through several suicide attempts meant that I kind of, it, it had built resilience to, to kind of really want to go there and to find a way, I suppose. And, you know, I think a lot of people with anxiety, this is the extraordinary thing. In a real crisis, we are 
we're freaking awesome. I've seen right? that. I've seen that this year. Yeah. Time good. and time again, the people during COVID that have said to me, I'm, I'm doing okay, are the people with anxiety. And they've said, I've heard this numerous times, I've built up decades of experience to put in my <laughs> toolkit. And now everyone around me is saying, oh, there's all this uncertainty and I don't know how to deal with it. And they're saying, welcome to my world. This is how I've lived every day of my life. So now I feel like the rest of the world's caught up. I'm actually quite well equipped. That's right. And and I would add two extra layers to that. One of the worst things about being anxious is we get anxious about being anxious. Mm. We rate ourselves for mm. being anxious. Mm. Oh, I should be able to cope. And then we get anxious about being anxious about being anxious mm. and we go down this horrible spiral. The last 12 months has been a legit thing to be anxious yeah. about. So every time I got anxious, I'm like, oh, well, you'd be insane if you weren't, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually made us feel quite comfortable in our anxiety. And, of course, I have that phrase, and first you make the beast beautiful, just do anxiety once. Mm-hmm. And so that's enabled us just to do it once, and that's manageable. Mm-hmm. And as, as you would probably know, panic attacks only last about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, as spell of anxiety, if you don't catastrophize it and give yourself a hard time, it, you can get through it, you know. You've, you've got a chance of getting through it. The other thing I would say is that and Greta Thunberg, there was an interview done with her and there was a lot of criticism, as you'd know, about the fact that this 15-year-old who's got really quite clinical uh, anxiety, anxious disorders. So mm. she was she was almost mute for a year, not speaking to anyone but her parents. She couldn't leave her bedroom. She was self-harmer. Mm. She, you know, there was a whole range of things that she was going through. And then when she started taking action against the against climate and doing a protest outside the Swedish Parliament, all of a sudden she came into her own. Yeah. And I actually feel that in particular sort of disorders like people with OCD and bipolar, these hypersensitive, highly attuned disorders, Mm. I actually think there's a subset of us in any given population that have these conditions in almost as it was some of us are prepared for a crisis. Mm. Uh, Winston Churchill and a whole rate had bipolar and something like 70% of effective wartime leaders throughout history had bipolar. They believe that shamans and various community leaders displayed bipolar behaviour and in the animal kingdom as well, chimpanzees who display some of these behaviours are generally the ones that can keep a plan safe and cohesive. So I think there's something to be said for that. It's like tough times call for inherently anxious people at our moment, you know. For a whole range of reasons. Yeah, and it makes you question what actually is a normal human. You know, a normal human is not one devoid of anxiety. <laughs> no. Yeah. So there's, no, that's right. Who gets to say what 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 is typical normal human behaviour and what isn't? And I have some issues with the DSM, yeah. which is the Diagnostic Manual for those listening who don't know, that, that you know, is so big on labels and, and really those diagnoses are a group of um, symptoms and that's how we diagnose. But Oh, and often, um, I mean, I've got huge problems with DSM too and the way that um, I think anxiety entered the DSM as a quote-unquote disorder in 1980. Yeah. And it was, I think, a year after the first anti-anxiety medication was invented. It's like grief. Grief, you know, grief's got to look in now in the DSM. And it's like yeah, grief is the most normal response to loss and pain. And when people ask, oh. how long should I be grieving for or what's wrong with me because I'm still grieving, of course you're grieving. We're all grieving so many things and it makes sense that we are. Yeah. So don't put yeah, that in the DSM right. in my book, if it, if, it, if it was my book. So just changing tack, yes. you talk also a lot about nature and nature being yourself. And I, and I know when we tried to do this talk a few weeks ago, you were in Tassie and doing wild and wonderful things in the middle of nowhere. What do you think it is about nature that soothes and, and repairs us? Well, I've, for some reason, I've always inherently been drawn to it when I've been anxious since I was a young child. And I moved out of home quite young and I had a post-it note on my door that said, just climb a tree. And so when I'd get anxious and I was having panic attacks, I would put on my shoes, bolt out the, sort of the, the back of where I was living in this sort of group house with, you know, people who are much older than me, and uh, climb a tree. It, there was this reassurance. Mm. I think it was a bit of a childhood thing. I used to do it as a kid. I'd climb a tree to go and think. And my brothers referred to the fact that um, their memory of me was in a tree 
gazing out to a horizon. And my brother Pete says, you're always just dreaming of better. <laughs> um, and I do that from a tree. Is it dreaming of better or is it grounding? That sounds like it's, it's natural, innate grounding. Oh, look, I mean, that, yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, of course, that's, I suppose, what it was doing, right? Um, but also, uh, if we're going to take that analogy further, um, it was also like I would climb to the top, I would climb to the scary bit where mm. you're waving around in the breeze out on the literally the outer limbs. Mm. And um, I think there was that, uh, that sort of going into a, a slightly scared space as well mm. um, brought me out of my, out of my doldrums, you know. Um, but I think, um, so, so to the nature piece, there's a whole range of things and there are literally tens of thousands of studies predominantly done by the South Koreans and the Japanese who have brought what's called forest bathing into their health policies. Mm. Um, and, it's, and it's a legit part of their health, you know, their health setup in, um, in both of those countries. So there's been a lot of studies that have been done. And there's a couple that I pull out in the book. And I explore these, obviously, and I go off in search of, you know, the world expert on forest therapy and mountain ranges in Japan. And I also go and do it in, in Los Angeles because it's become a really big thing over there. And, and I also follow the footsteps of Nietzsche who had to walk in nature to write his work because, you know, Wordsworth and a whole range of poets and, you know, Virginia Woolf and so on. So the two of the studies that, or two of the sort of philosophical and scientific studies I really like, our retinas are made up of fractals. They're these sort of repeating patterns and so a natural phenomenon like, a daisy, if you think of the petals of a flower or the, the fronds of a fern or wave pools and shells. They're all these patterns that are called fractals, repeated patterns that sort of the physics, you know, construct in, in nature. And when we see them and our retina, you know, registers them in our brain, there's this sort of attunement, there's this recognition and it creates a sense of belonging, this kind of right, this is where I'm meant to be, this makes sense. Mm. And I feel that when I'm walking in nature, but it's so lovely to, to hear a sort of scientific explanation yeah. for it. And that's only one of, as I say, tens of thousands. Um, another one, and there's lots of studies have been to show that trees release hormones. I think they're called cytokines, and they interact with our hormones and actually increase dopamine levels. Also, Having a horizon and also a, a sky above us, it leads to more creative thinking. And so classrooms have been built with higher ceilings off the, you know, off the back of that thinking. Um, but this one that I really like, and it's the idea that walking, so that's essentially what we do. So walking in nature and hiking is, you know, is obviously um, the thing that I'm really into. Walking goes at the same pace as discerning thought. Mm. So we evolved into erect humans, you know, from being on all fours um, and put one foot in front of the other. And at the same time as we developed our human faculties, the things that made us unique as humans, which is discerning thought and ability to think about our positioning in the world. And I would say that a lot of our despair in heading into 2021 stems from the fact that we don't give ourselves the time, the space to do discerning thought. Walking encourages it. It goes at the same pace. And I also say the handwriting as opposed to typing does. Sure. And there's a plethora of research to support that as well. And yet the art of That's picking right. up a pen is kind of so lost. Well, I handwrite all my books. So this One Wild and Precious Life was all handwritten wow. and it's all on scraps of paper, serviettes, the back of receipts. And written at bars and and uh, bookshops and on trains and and everything. And then I literally laid them out on the floor. And as I moved around, because I was wrote some of it in Greece, I wrote some of it in Slovakia. I would literally pick up each piece of paper and have a little paper clip and keep it together. And I'd get to my next place and lay it all out again. And mm. I don't sit down and type until visually, you know, I've got a a feel for it all. But yes, let's. Some of the reasoning, but look, there's so many, and I and I cover off some of them in the book, and I find so much peace in that. That that a salve, a way to reconnect mm. um, with who we are, can be found by just being one foot in the front of the other. Go and walk in a, a local park, 
that's enough. Which is accessible to, to really nearly every single human, well, I won't say every single human on the planet, but highly accessible to so many and yet under underutilised. Those of us with the luxury of reflecting on, on our existence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking nature. I was thinking nature, not, not the discerning thought piece because if you're trying to survive, then discerning thoughts sort of aren't. That's uh, right, so exactly, yeah. But, but nature's out most of our, you know, most of our, around us in some way and I think we, we, we're blind to it so often. You were just talking about hormones when you were talking about the tree hormones and it, it made me think about something else I've heard you say. You were, I think, referencing Jane Fonda who celebrates women coming into their power in menopause <laughs> and uh, you and I are not dissimilar in, in age and I think that the menopause research shows that um, our our testosterone increases and our pull to nurture others reduces or to put the needs of others first perhaps reduces. So what do you think um, as women both in our late 40s, how can we harness those hormonal changes? Oh, I think um, I remember seeing a talk. Actually, I organised a talk at university, the women's officer on campus, and I remember we used to get different speakers in. I remember somebody suggesting the idea that menstruation, a period, is ra- rather than going into deep hole, is an opening. So women have this opportunity where we have this sort of this tear in the fabric of everyday existence. And all the stuff that we're feeling gets to come forth. And what a wonderful way, you know, what a wonderful experience we get to have. And I remember thinking about it going, gosh, that's awesome. What a great way to think about it. Now at, you know, almost 47, I am seeing something that's often seen terrifying, horrible, rendering of oneself as invisible on the planet. Mm. Um, I'm actually choosing to see it as just this wonderfully freeing event. And look, I'm a couple of years off of going through menopause, but certainly my hormones are having a tough old time, you know, and especially, you know, stress really triggers some mm. horrible stuff mm. that I've never experienced before. I think that there's a real opportunity to recast it. And as you say, Jane Fonda has made the point that so many of the climate activists are women in their 60s mm. because they're able to really get laser focused with what they care about. That ability to care deeply that they that we are naturally programmed by our hormones to steer towards others um, backs off a little. However, we've trained that muscle to then steer us towards other things. Mm. And so many women find this sort of almost second wind comes about in their 50s and 60s. I know my grandmother, one of my grandmothers did. Mm. She went up and did all these, retrained, went to university, got a driver's license for the first time. Um, joined all these clubs and there's this incredible energy that comes about because years and years of serving others um, built a muscle and built an ability to connect and to go and seek out things, solutions that aren't always obvious, you know. A mother at home with children who's had to find ways to find meaning and connection and nourishment, they've had to get pretty creative over the Mm. years. So I can see that. I can see it happening around me. I can feel it in myself. And I think what happens, and I think for women, we have less fucks to give about the wrong things and more fucks to give about the right things. And gosh, it's refreshing. It's really, uh, I just, I feel myself firing up. Um, And and I love women like um, Jane Fonda who just show that you can do it well into your 80s. Yeah, and beyond, and beyond. Mm, yeah, exactly. So you you clearly understand um, the quest for meaning and purpose. We've talked a lot about it, and everything you talk about, you can you can hear the meaning and purpose that sits beneath it. So one day, Sarah, when you're no longer here and perhaps hiking in the vast wilderness in the sky or wherever we go when we're not <laughs> here anymore, what legacy do you want to leave for others? Oh, um, look, there's a couple of phrases I suppose that could sum it up. I hope that people, I inspire a few people to live a life where they're, off, they, they're motivated by the idea of giving a shit and not holding back from that, not not drawing a line between things. Just give a shit, give a shit, give a shit. And also going first, being brave enough just to go first. So I suppose, yeah, that would be encapsulated in this idea of being wild, hmm. you know. Um, going first, going first. You said. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, going first. Um, you know, we can sit around uh, waiting for China and India to apparently clean up their environmental act, although I would point out they've got far better climate policies than Australia. 
before we be the adult and we just go first. Mm. We just do what is required, whether or not we cause the problem. We just go and do the work that needs to be done. Mm. Um, that's powerful. That sounds very stoic, but um, yeah, that, that's what I feel is needed at the moment. I, I don't necessarily know if I'll leave that legacy. I hope that many people do and I hope that it becomes contagious. Yeah, I think you're already making a contribution in that space. You already have. But that that going first idea, you could overlay that into so many domains of life, not just climate change. But it's not being fearful. Oh, yeah. It's not waiting to copy. It's not waiting to be safe, not waiting to it's do what's vulnerable. expected. Yeah, being vulnerable. Yeah. Mm, being so, vulnerable. Uh, and I remember Renee Brown, her best definition of being vulnerable is saying, I, is, is being the person who says, I love you first. Yeah, so um, there's there's a beautiful it, example of going first right there. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, we always end um, our conversations on human cogs with the same question. So I'm going to throw that question to you. And that is amongst amongst all the confusion or messiness or complications of life, who do you think is doing human well? Look, I'm going to say Seth Godin. Um, Seth Godin, the marketer, the prolific marketer, um, I've interviewed him a couple of times over the course of 11 years now and he is probably the most legit operator in terms of he's very deliberate in the way he does things. He works out where he can be of most service. Mm-hmm. He identifies it. He puts a whopping great fence around it and then he ensures that that is sacred. He, more than anyone I've ever interviewed, and I've interviewed you know hundreds of different thought leaders and whatever, mm-hmm over the years as a journalist and, and writer, and he would probably be the most legit, authentic operator. Um, mm. So much so, I have said this before in a, in a conference where I spoke at, someone wrote to him and told him about that anecdote, about the fact that I'd said that mm. in a public space. He then found my email address and emailed me to thank me. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. That's, that's called um, living beautifully and fully human. And that requires at the moment being very deliberate with what we will allow to distract us. It's being very deliberate about what matters and ensuring that we steer our energy towards that because that's what, that's what life is calling us to do right now. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. 